0: Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info@capitalchurch.co. At well, good good morning. It's still morning? Uh, man, I'm so excited that you made it here this morning. Could you turn to your neighbor and just tell him, "Hey, I'm so glad you made it." Just go tell him that. You guys excited to be here? Hey, can we can we thank our worship team? Thank you guys. You guys are amazing. So, how many excited to be here? Love you guys. All right, turn to your other neighbor and say, Go Chiefs. We're going to do this for the next three months. Go Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs. How many of you like sports? All right, all right. We love sports. Well, hey, um, I I don't know if I need to reintroduce myself, but uh, my name is Chris, and my wife and I, Kelly. Um, are the lead pastors of this church? We are so glad that you made it here uh, this morning. Obviously, I haven't been on the pulpit for uh, a couple months, but it is good to be back with you guys. I love this church. How many of you love this church? We're part of a, a good family, right? Uh, I just want to thank um, our our teaching team. We are blessed, aren't we blessed? We have a great teaching team, and uh, they've done a spectacular job over the last two months while I've been um, helping my wife raise some babies. Uh, but uh, I just want to personally thank uh, Tracy and Shane, uh, who over the last two weeks talked about the generosity of God and did an incredible job. And so I want to thank them. Could you thank them for those messages? And then uh, Pastor Ken, who spoke uh, a couple weeks, I'm here a couple weeks ago, and uh, he talked about agreement prayer. Remember that? Great messages. And so, um, man, Pastor Ken is amazing. Can you thank Pastor Ken for those messages? We're blessed, aren't we? And then we had, if if you were here, maybe about a month ago. Man, I just like time. I just can't get. I don't even know where I'm at right now. Uh, But I think it was about a month ago. Uh, where we had a prayer conference, maybe a little bit over a month, and uh, we had Dr. Frank Damasio and uh, Mike Heron with us, and uh, they did an extraordinary job. How many of you are blessed with Dr. Uh, Frank's teaching, right? Amazing, blessed. And uh, so we're, we're, we're just a blessed family. Uh, we love sports, right? We love kids. We love families. But m- most importantly, we love Jesus, and we're excited about this um, next season of the church, if you don't know this, but this week we start our our Lent. and uh, we're gonna move into it like a Lenten series, and so we're really excited about that. Uh, I'm gonna be in and out of out of the pulpit. We don't have pulpits anymore. I don't even know what else to say, but you guys understand what I'm saying. Uh, so, thank you for uh, your continued prayers. Our teaching team and myself will, as we move forward, will uh, collaborate and we'll teach more on the kingdom of God and His goodness. And this is going to be a great year. Amen. So, thank you for all your prayers. Uh, my wife and I were were treading water. Um, we're making it. Uh, if it wasn't for my wife, there's no way. Uh, that we as a family would have made it thus far. She is amazing. How many of you love my wife, my gorgeous, my soulmate, whatever. She is absolutely amazing, and we're so blessed to uh, have her uh, lead and um, pray for us and minister to us. Uh, Also, I just want to show, kind of give you an update with our kids. Our kids are doing really amazing. Can I show some pictures, pictures? If I can talk, pick pictures. Um, we have my my two oldest. So, if you don't know this, we have four babies under 14 months, and so we have King and Press right in the front row. Do we have any pictures? If we don't, that's totally fine. Um, my wife forgot to send them. We don't have pictures. Sorry, guys. Um, but Presley, he was up here with the with his little uh, Dallas Cowboy helmet. All the Cowboy fans, set. Come on, love these two little. They're stinkers. They are stinkers. Um, we're blessed, babe. Let me tell the story. We like being honest here. Now, Presley, uh, I love. He is the sweetest boy. What's that? The happiest boy. Um, he had. Uh, he has a little. Uh, I'll explain. He had a little uh, snail. We have like a little snail thing that you actually get on and you ride around. He didn't see it. I had, like, at the moment, three kids, so I couldn't help him. He hit it, and he started crying. And he looked at me, and I'm like, sorry, man, you're on your own, right, with three babies. He got a little angry, so he hit it once, right. He hit it twice, just pretty mad. He hit it, oh, you want to come to your daddy, right. He hit it the third time, and uh, then he went, like this. So he has a temper like his mom, you know. I mean, she just has a wicked temper. No, I'm the one that has a temper. But I love it. They're getting strong. And then Kingsley, I just love his little smile. He has four front teeth, two in the top, two in the bottom. He looks exactly like me. And uh, I look for baby pictures to kind of compare Kingsley with me. And my mom lost all of my baby pictures. Apparently, she doesn't love me. But I found all of Tracy's and all of Rochelle's. So I don't even know what to think about it. I do not know what to think about it. Um, and then our two little babies, uh, we have Wave and our ride guy. They're amazing right there. They keep us up all night long. They st- they're so cute right there. Four in the morning is a different story. And all the parents said... All right, man. We love families here at Catholic Church. We love kids, and uh, we believe God has great things in store for the next generation. Um, all right. I'm gonna. I want to talk quickly about Revelation chapter four. I don't want to get too dense. Uh, I, I just want to share my my heart. I, I want to help help us navigate difficulties, man. Most likely, and with church statistics it's it's pretty obvious that probably 70% of your congregation or your service, people are really struggling with difficult things. And so I, I'm i just working from an assumption that we we all have our struggles, right? How many of you have at least one issue? Okay, right, you got one issue, right? We know we got at least 99 of them, right? Problems and difficulties, and maybe some of you are going through a really tough season and, and you're experiencing suffering or whatever, uh, This message, I think, is is specific for you. It's for all of us. But I think when we're going through difficult times, maybe testing, maybe a dry season, maybe we're going through something really difficult, I think it's important that we learn to structure our life around a different reality. And that reality is God's reality. Like, we need to see um, our reality. We need to see ourselves, our families, our parenting. I mean, parenting, right? Right. Life itself, we need to see it from God's perspective. So that's kind of my basic message. This is a basic uh, talk here today. Um, Before I get into Revelation uh, chapter uh, 4, actually, let's just read Revelation 4. We begin in verse um, 1. St. John is taken into heaven. In verse 1, it reads, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Everyone say Heaven. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, right, rumblings and peals of thunder. It's like a 1985 rock concert. And before, no, that didn't, okay. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. This is kind of a reference to... um, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. These are probably like seraphim. In the ancient Near East, seraphim were called burning ones. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6 and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Holiness is troubled here. Uh, That's significant. uh, To double something in Hebrew poetry was to make a statement that something was qualitatively different. Here we have God's holiness is troubled meaning that God's beauty, his majesty is qualitatively different than anything that we've ever experienced. So holy, holy, holy. Could you say holy? Holy is the Lord God Almighty. How many of you believe that God's Almighty? almighty? Who was and is and is to come. He's the tenseless one, right? And whatever the living creatures give glory and honor, And thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. I want you to check this out. The 24 elders fall down before him. They bow. Everyone say bow. So would you say there's a lot of bowing in heaven? All right, so this is, I'm not here to be rhetorical. I'm going to ask the question. i like some feedback. Why do you think the 24 elders are bowing? Reverence. Good. What else? Honor. Did I hear honor right? Yes, that's good. Reverence, honor. What else? Ah, right? I want you to, you you, got to practice some biblical imagination. Imagine that you are getting this kind of vision, right? And you're in just pure or sheer majesty or beauty. I think you would be, you would have a sense of reverence and honor. What else? Any other thoughts? What's that? Thankfulness. Hum- humility, yeah, I think. How many of you think our culture needs a little bit more humility? I think those, those, are, good, those are good answers. I think all of those are right. I think all of that forms kind of this posture that the 24 elders take. I also like to suggest that the reason why they bow down is because every time that they come up and they see God, they see a different aspect to him. So there's God, God you can't exhaust God, right, in his beauty, his majesty. And so they're bowing before him, And they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy, and here we have a song, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive what? Glory and honor and power. I want to say that again. I want you to feel this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you were created, or for you created, all things and by your will they existed and they were created. Everyone said amen. 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 I want you by your heads, close your eyes. Father, we just thank you for being with us today. I just thank you the next few minutes. You would come and speak. In the next twenty minutes. Come speak to your sons and daughters. Oh, we love you so much. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in us, in this community, in our families, with our kids. Lord, we thank you that great things are in store for your people. Lord, help us today um, get, get in touch with you, Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that we don't know you, but you first know us. So we just thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would take this word and you would make it alive in us, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but my wife was uh, a vegan for a while. This is why I love vegans. I always talk positively about vegans. (laughs) But we were a vegan maybe for about a year, longer than that, a couple years. Then she went, then she turned to raw foodism, right? She was a raw foodist for a while. So there was a, a good season in our life that we just ate birdseed, and uh, we just had man. It was just the, I, I man, you gotta try being a vegan. You will be, so, I promise, so happy, so happy. Um, no, I man, I love, I love vegans. I told you if you're a vegan, man, I love it. Go, just go full vegan, whatever. Um, but before. My wife was a vegan. She, um, she made soups. How many of you love soup? Okay. Uh, she made the best soups and she just put a ton of cream in the soups and meat. How many you like meat, right? And I loved it at, at like, you know, being a pastor, some days you have, you have good days and then you have bad days. I loved it on the bad days I'd come home and my wife, again, she loved making soups. I remember coming um, on some bad days and as I come into the house, I loved, and some of you probably can relate to this, the smell of a really good soup, right? It just, the aroma was amazing, and it just smelled delicious, right? And uh, I, what, what's what's amazing about soup, obviously, is that it, sometimes it smells better than it actually tastes, right? If you you know what I mean? Like how many of you love the smell of coffee more than you actually like drinking, right? Some of you are like that. But with my wife, her soups were, they, they tasted like how it smelled, right? And so uh, what I would do is I would sneak, she wouldn't let me see what she was making, but every now and then uh, I would go to the pot and I would try to lift off the, the pot so I could see in what she was making. And again, it was always an incredible experience. I loved the aroma of soup. I, I just, Her soups were delicious. And uh, I loved the revelation. I loved not knowing what this soup was, but smelling it. Everyone say smelling it. Smelt good, but I loved, and that was great, but what I really loved was going over to the stove and taking the lid off the pot, peering in and seeing what she was making. Uh, this is kind of an unveiling, right? And this is what the whole entire book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is a book of apocalypse. Apocalypse simply means in the Greek to unveil something. And when we come to, before I get to Revelation chapter 4, we have this apocalypse that God brings to St. John. Now St. John is exiled. Everyone say exiled. He's on an island, Patmos, and he's been exiled. And he's worshiping on the Lord's Day. And Jesus comes up from behind him, right? He has a white sash. He's totally hipster. He has whatever, long hair, fire in his eyes. His voice is like thunder. His voice is like a cataract. And he comes up from behind John and gives him a vision of a lampstand. Everyone say lampstand. We, we, we come to find out because apocalyptic lit, it's, re, it's resistance literature. But it also uses symbolism. When you go to the book of Revelation, it's important that you don't literalize everything in the book of Revelation. Can I say amen? So we're, we're totally against kind of charting out certain things when it comes to the book of Revelation. Because the genre of apocalyptic works in using lurid symbols to make a broader point about God working in cosmic history. So we have Jesus in this vision that St. John receives in the middle of these lampstands. There's seven lampstands. The entire book of Revelation is structured around sevens. Everyone would say sevens. You have seven churches. You have seven bowls. You have seven, it's just a lot of different sevens. And the book of Revelation is a kaleidoscopic, like, um, unfolding drama of how God will put creation to rights. That's essentially what the book of Revelation is about. But the first vision that St. John receives is on Patmos, and it's of seven lampstands, which represent seven churches in ancient Turkey. And we find this in chapter two and chapter three of the book of Revelation. These churches, now hear me, these churches more than anything needed an apocalypse. What's an apocalypse? Is it zombies walking around? Is it God coming to annihilate the, the space-time continuum? Is that what we mean by apocalypse? No. By apocalypse, what we mean, what the Bible means is that these churches needed an unveiling. This is exactly what they needed. So these lampstands are described in a lot of different ways. But St. But John makes it very clear in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that these churches are messy. These churches are struggling. Some churches have lost their first love. Some churches are so wealthy that they've kind of embraced this easy-going complacency. Some churches have misused sex. Some churches have embraced false doctrine. Some churches have a little bit of strength and are really faithful, but they're undergoing persecution. So St. John gives us a realistic picture of these seven churches, which I think just represents church in general. Churches are not like Victorian parlors. I've talked about this before. But churches are messy. Why? Well, because we're human. And yes, in baptism and in faith and in repentance, and when we put our trust in King Jesus, yeah, God calls us children of God, right? We talk about this all the time. In baptism, our life is bound up then in the life of Jesus. And when God the Father sees us in baptism, he no longer sees our old self. He sees us as sons and daughters. Can I get an amen? It's really important that we understand that. But with that being said, we are, as churches, we are a mess because we're still in the process of God making us fully human. Right, and I've, I've used this illustration uh, many times. Churches are like family rooms, right? If you, if you have a lot of kids, we have seven kids. And my wife and I, we clean our home all the time. All the time. And within 30 minutes to an hour, our family room is a disaster, right? There's dirt everywhere. There's a kid half naked, right, diaper half off, Right? There's baby wipes all over the place. There's food all over the floor. It's not because my wife and I are slobs. It's because we have kids. And here's the thing. As a parent, you have to make a decision, right? If you're married, right, and you're a couple and you want kids, you can either, and this is the decision that my wife and I had, my wife and I had to make, you either have a clean home or you have kids, Right, can I get a witness? So you can't make, a, you can't have both, right? I think the same is true of churches, right? And St. John is telling us that these churches are really struggling. And they need help, right? Some are addicted to sex. Some are obsessed over esoteric theology. Some are just plain out weird. Some churches have lost their first love. They're not helping people anymore. They're not reflecting the goodness and the love of God back into the world. Churches, some of these churches have turned in, into themselves. Other churches are, are, are strong and they're faithful, but they're about ready to undergo persecution. So St. John gives us a realistic picture of these churches. The question that we have to ask ourselves as we look at this vision of St. John in chapter 1, 2, and 3, we have to ask ourselves is where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Some of you might know the answer. The answer is explicit. Jesus is not outside the churches, these seven churches. He's not outside the struggle. He's not outside the difficulty. He's not abandoning the church. Jesus is in the midst of his people, speaking to them, loving them, caring for them, correcting them, leading them as a good shepherd. God is not in, on this annihilation binge, hating on his people. Jesus is not somewhere out in the sky. Jesus is not somewhere outside his people. Jesus is in the midst of his people. Are you hearing me? And these struggling churches, and in all their mess are embraced by God the Father. You've heard me say this before many times, and I'm going to get to Revelation chapter 4 here really quick. But man, this is why we're not churchians. This is why we don't believe in churchianity. This is why we call ourselves Christians. Because if you start to idealize the church, if you start to assume that everybody in this room doesn't have a mess and everybody's perfect, and if you follow Jesus, you're not going to have your issues, and if you're a Christian, you can't Christian cuss in your head, I'll be honest with you, I, with seven kids, I, every now and then, Christian cuss in my head, okay? <laughs> right, if you, if, if you start from a place of idealizing the church, you're going to be really disappointed. And We've talked about this. If we can just level the playing field, if in baptism, if, if you've been baptized and you've made a decision to follow Jesus with all your heart... Hey, you are a child of God. You are loved by him with an everlasting love. Hear me, hear me. God is in the midst of his people. That doesn't mean his people are not without flaws. Here's the thing. It doesn't make you prophetic. Like, I'm tired, so I hope this doesn't come off as anger. But it doesn't make you prophetic if you go to a church and in, within maybe five minutes you can, like, identify a couple flaws, If I went over to your house and had a conversation in three minutes, I've been in ministry for 25 years, I could probably tell you some things that are a little bit off. My wife, if we asked my wife and we gave her the mic right now, hey, come up and tell us ten flaws that Chris has. Ten seconds. She could rattle them off. (laughs) Right? It's funny. People are, like, like typing. They're blogging about the church. And and we call this slacktivism. They're slackers. Right, And they're talking about how the church is this and that, and I get it, and some of what they say is true. But Jesus is not outside the church. Jesus is in the middle of his people. And you need to hear me this morning, because some of you are really struggling right now. And maybe you've made bad decisions. Or maybe you're just really tired, and maybe you want to give up on church. Here's the good news. Even though we want to give up on the church, Jesus does not give up on the church. He's right in the middle of his people. So what? What then do God's people need? These struggling people, right? Well, God gives St. John a vision. He gives them a glimpse into heaven. Before I get into the features of this vision, and then we're going to pray for um, people at the end of the service, I think we'll end with some worship. Is that all right with you? Can you give me about 10 minutes? I think we need to talk a little bit about heaven. When I was a young man, I, um, I promise I'm going to bring this full circle. I, uh, there's this saying that kind of, I get it, but it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And if, you, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard this saying, um, that person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I don't like the logic, because I think the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. But I get what they're trying to say, right? Uh, these are the people that, man, they just kind of they go from conference to conference to conference. Bethel comes into town, they they do the Bethel thing. Uh, Hillsong comes in, they do the Hillsong hop, right? They go and experience. They're junkies, right? They're church junkies, and they're just they're they're they man, their their heads in the clouds, and um, they don't care for their families. Maybe they practically don't pay the bills or whatever, and they don't know how to live their lives on a daily basis. But they they go to church, right? I think that's. That's probably what people meant. I still don't like um, when it comes to that statement, but I still don't like that statement because I really believe, hear me, it's important for us, if we want to follow Jesus in 2020, that we have to structure our lives around what's happening in heaven right now. A failure to be really heavenly minded will lead, a failure of that, will lead not to the good life or human flourishing, it will lead to the opposite of that. I think some people when they say, hey man, that dude, that guy, right, he's um, so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Some people, and I think it's in the church, they, what they mean is that that person has this Gnostic worldview. Now it's important for us to understand Revelation 4, please hear me. Can I just like nerd out on you for three minutes. Two minutes. Five minutes? Okay, can I nerd out on you? Just a little bit of theology. Usually when we think of heaven, we have a receptacle view of heaven, right? Rather than a relational view. I want to describe that. by relational, what we mean is that creation itself. Everyone say creation. I talk about this a lot, but just bear with me. Creation is a heaven-earth construct. In other words, uh, heaven and earth, they overlap and they intersect in ways that we can't see, thus meaning relational. receptacle view has this kind of triple-decker vision of the cosmos, meaning that heaven is like somewhere out in the Milky Way, in interstellar space, behind one of the big stars that Shane talked about last week, right? Maybe a trillion miles away, it's a distant location. Heaven and earth are radically, radically separate from each other. Many people think of heaven that way. Well, when you come to the Bible, the Bible sees heaven more relationally. Heaven and earth relate to each other in in a tangential sense. They overlap. They interdigitate. Is that a word? They're attached in ways that we can't see, right? Which behind this, now let me just say this really quick, and I'll get back to what I'm saying. Behind all of this is the idea that this world matters, Right, You go to the book of Psalms, Genesis chapter 1, and you see replete throughout the, the praying and the worshiping of the poets in the Psalter is this idea that this world throbs with God's glory. That matter, everyone say matter. Matter matters. Bodies, brains. Again, I talk about this a lot. Things that we do, watching the Dallas Cowboys lose, even though that sucks, it still matters, right? Like going to Starbucks, doing what we do as humans Matters because Genesis chapter one verse twenty-eight tells us that this world is God says this world is good. The Gnostic worldview is the idea that this world really doesn't matter. What matters is the heavenly one, and we reject that. Let me just say this real quick: Um, if if you're new to town, if you this is Northwest, right? That's Northwest, that direction. If you're new to town, I recommend during the summer that you take a drive. How many like summer drives? I love summer drives, and uh, usually what, what Kel and I like to do, like around July, is uh, about 830, 845, we'll head out about four miles this way, and uh, we find you'll find so much land, and you'll find like farmland, it's amazing. We'll roll down our windows and smell the mint. How many love mint? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, I love farms. I used to be a farmer. I raised cattle. How many of you bucked hay in your life? I bucked hay for a long time. I'm a bucker of hay. Right. I love, love farming. So we, you know, we like to go out and just take a drive. But if you go far enough, you'll find a barn, right? A dilapidated, broken barn, a farm thing. And uh, usually when you see it, you know it's been abandoned, right? Uh, Rock chucks, they chuck wood in there. I don't know. Uh, It's Usually, you, you just have to let your imagination go, right? You kind of think about the history. It's obviously broken down. No one's lived in it for a while right, it's, it's abandoned, it's broken down, maybe it's infested with rats, there's no way you can live in that barn. In fact, that barn doesn't matter, it's insignificant now. That is what people think about earth, some people. It's in the church. Well, this world, what I do now doesn't really matter. What, what I do with sex, what I do with money, what I do with power, what I do with my body doesn't really matter. Heaven is what matters Most And that is not the Christian story. In fact, God rejects that. This world matters. You matter. And what you do every single day matters in the eyes of God. This world, Habakkuk and Isaiah, tells us, and you find this throughout the book of Psalms, is flooded with the majesty and the glory of God. Yeah, things have been defaced. But this world matters. That's usually, I think, what people think when they say um, you're too heavenly-minded and to no earthly good, right? Kind of this people kind of embrace this Gnostic worldview about how this world doesn't matter, but we know that this world does matter. So you have that. Just hear me, I'm just nerd out on you for a couple more minutes, and then you have the other side of the coin. You have, when well, the words of one scholar, we live in a generation of wretched flat earthers. Like, what are we talking about, Chris? Well, let me just explain. Uh, many of you don't realize this, you're not aware of this, but pretty much everyone in this room is a raging materialist. We are consumers. Some of you are like, no, 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 no. Y- yes, 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 yes. Like turn to your neighbor and say, you are a materialist. What does that mean? Really quick. Please, please, please don't 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 get bored here. Uh, that simply means that we quantify and we place value on what we see as opposed to what we can't see. So we reduce, right? We reduce our lives and we place value and place worth on the material, right? And we allow the material to form our opinions about everything else. And so this is this basic idea is called bottom up theology. If you're a raging materialist, you start with your feelings, you start with your circumstances. Those are good. I think we need to address our feelings. Can I get an amen? I think we need to identify why we feel what we feel, but we need to go beyond our feelings and allow God's truth to speak to our feelings in order to enter into God's peace and his righteousness. And into human flourishing. But bottom-up theologies, we take our feelings and our circumstances. And feelings are good things. They can be bad things. But we, we work from the assumption that our feelings and our circumstances are ultimate reality. And then we try to get into heaven or we try to get into God's perspective. And that will never stink and work. Right? Beginning with materialism and then trying to get your head into heaven will never work. If you want to Follow Jesus. If you want to overcome the struggles and the difficulties in your life, we have to work what some scholars call top. Down. We got to work from God's perspective, what He sees and what He says about ultimate reality, and we allow our circumstances to be subsumed within that. We take everything from raising kids and parenting. You didn't like that first service, love that much, much better. From going to restaurants and having shakes and date nights and watching movies and getting careers and everything that we do here in life. We got to take all of that and we got to place it under God's perspective. So the Bible rejects being only a heaven person and only an earth person. The Bible says and makes it very clear that we are heaven earth people. In other words, we're a community that is structured around this heaven earth construct. So we come to Revelation chapter 4. What we find at the very beginning is that John doesn't take like a vertical takeoff, primitive vertical takeoff, and fly into heaven. What we find is that this invisible curtain kind of just rolls back, and John can see reality for what it is. He sees into heaven. And what he sees is that heaven is not inert. Usually when you think of heaven, what do you think of really quick? Any thoughts? Talk to me. Clouds. A non-spatial temporal place, right? Little little, tiny angels, disembodied angels with disembodied harps, right? Doing much of nothing, right? How many of you want to do much of nothing? No, we're not made for that, right? We think usually, we, when we think of heaven, we think of like a static place. We think that we're like suspended in like some disembodied Um, inactivity, but what you find in heaven is that it's not inert. It's more like a rock concert. In fact, rock concerts are cheap imitations or cheap parodies of what you find in heaven itself. Heaven is dynamic right now. Remember what I said earlier, right? I'm getting out of the nerd out section, but let me go back to the nerd out section. Remember, heaven and earth relate to each other. So heaven is not way out there, but relates intimately with our space. So right now, in this very moment, what day is it? February 23rd, 1218, heaven at this moment looks like what we find in Revelation chapter 4. In fact, when we look at Revelation chapter 4, many people think, oh, this is like the end of time when God annihilates the space-time continuum, right? It throws it into a cosmic dumpster fire. Right? And this is where we all shine like Rihanna's diamonds. Right? I have to say that at least three times a year. But this picture that we find in Revelation chapter 4 is not, is not about the end. It's not a, a future look into our ultimate destinations. At destination as, as Christians. This is currently what is happening right now at this very moment. We can't see it. So, heaven is not inert. Heaven is not some distant location, the space-time continuum that is altogether unrelated to our life. Heaven is present in this moment. And in heaven, you'll find some distinctive features. Remember, this is apocalyptic lit. And with apocalyptic literature, you would have people that would write in lurid symbols to describe something that that was indescribable. So we've got to be careful not to literalize this, but we find certain features in this uh, vignette, this heavenly vignette. First, we see a rainbow. What does a rainbow represent? Rainbow goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. It's a promise. A promise of what? That God will never destroy earth, good thing or bad thing. <laughs> now, a your question, It's a good thing. And and, and behind that promise is the steadfast love of God. And then you have emerald, right? Scholars have debated on what this could mean. Emerald combined in a dense way with a rainbow. I think the point is, and I'm taking kind of borrowing from one scholar, that this represents awe, majesty, and beauty ways we can imagine. So we have the first thing we find in heaven is a promise, right? That God will not annihilate the space-time world. We have a promise that God is near. We have a promise that God loves not only creation, but God loves his people. And then we have this depiction of just absolute sheer majesty. And then the vignette vignette kind of moves into the throne room. And before the throne, the ancient of days, we have a sea. What does the sea represent? We've talked about this before, but the sea represents uh, restless evil in the ancient Near East. You go to Daniel chapter 7, you go to the book of Psalms, and you can find the churning waters as a depiction of where chaotic evil resides. And in this beautiful picture in heaven, we have the Ancient of Days presiding over restless evil itself. In fact, the climax of the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21 and 22, the sea is no more not because God doesn't love oceans and seas, but because the sea represents evil and at the end of human history, God will remove evil, kick it out, defeat it, win the final victory over evil within this planet once and for all. So we have the promise of a faithful God. We have absolute beauty and majesty. It's dynamic, right? It's better than anything you would experience at uh, that country music thing that happened this summer, right? Garth Brooks and the Dive Bar. I know some of you love that song. But, man, this is so much better, right? Can I get an amen? And then we move into, obviously, the Ancient of Days on his throne. What does that mean? That simply means that God is sovereign over all things. All things. Everything from the White House, please hear me as we close. Everything to your family. God's sovereign over sickness. God's sovereign even over your feels. God's sovereign over the future, the past. God's sovereign over your now. Right, He knows exactly what you're struggling with, right? He is in charge. So what is heaven? Heaven is a place where God rules not just heaven, but heaven is a place where God rules heaven and earth. In fact, we find in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus on a mountain tells his disciples, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, now go and make disciples. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells his disciples how to pray. And he says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why, that's powerful. So the idea is, is that heavens is in charge, even though in our space things might feel the opposite. Can anyone relate to that? Heaven is still in charge. Jesus is still working in human history. Jesus is working in your life. He is present. He is a very present help in time of tr- tr- trouble. Come on. And we find in Mark chapter 1, that the heavens open. Jesus at his baptism. Voice comes out of heaven and announces over Jesus that you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Gives us again a picture of what we're talking about. Heaven and earth relate to each other. Heaven is not far from earth. God is ruling heaven F- ruling heaven and earth from heaven itself. And the voice that always comes from heaven is you're my son, you're my kid, you're my daughter, you're my child, and I love you. So Chris, here okay, we have features of heaven. You kind of nerded out on some stuff about heaven, right? At the beginning, you talked about these struggling churches and these messes. So what's the point of this message? The point of this message is, how do we, how do we negotiate struggle? How do we be the people of God? How do we be a community built on justice and righteousness and shalom? How do we enter into God's peace? How do we flourish as a community? How do we reflect the wisdom and the goodness of God to our generation? How do we live in God's empowering presence? How do we do that? Well, you can't start with earth and try to get into power. You have to let heaven form your perspective, what currently is going on in heaven to form your perspective on life. Heaven, in other words, has to take charge. Heaven has to take the lead, right? You gotta get fresh eyes and, and see what's been revealed here about what's going on in heaven. This takes time, it's a process, I totally understand it, but the more we begin to understand God's authority, his perspective, and what's happening in heaven, that is when we enter into God's grace, God's power, God's authority, his forgiveness, his freedom. Come on, somebody. His life, his peace, his joy. We can't start from our circumstances. We have to start from, okay, God, you're in charge of all things, so I'm going to submit everything to you. So how does this work? How do we structure our lives around heaven? How do we line our lives up with heaven, right? How do we do that? Well, I think the key here, the end of Revelation chapter 4, is that it ends with a song. And I want to read this song again. If you could do this, uh, media team, Revelation 4, perfect. Verse 11. The song goes like this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you were created, or for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. I think this is how we line our lives up with heaven. We have to learn to worship like this. We gotta be willing to come on Sundays and open our lives to this kind of reality. We gotta learn to be heaven and earth people that straddle heaven and earth and reflect the goodness of God to our neighbors and to people on the street and places of work. And the only way we can do that is within the framework of worship. So the question is, why do we worship? We worship because heaven is taking the lead and heaven is a mirror and showing us how we negotiate life. This is the apocalypse. This is revelation that the church has received, right? This is This vision is intended to encourage the people of God to overcome the misuse of sex, to get out of false teaching, to be who God has called them to be, right? This vision is learning to line our lives, helps us to line our lives up with God's reality. So why do we worship? Well, someone needs to worship. Why do people watch LeBron play, right? Well, someone needs to watch LeBron play. What about Steph Curry? Someone needs to watch Steph Curry play. Some of you are not getting it. Um, Why do we go to a Garth Brooks concert? Well, someone has to see someone who's talented in country music sing country music and talk about tequila and dive bars and all that kind of stuff, right? Someone has to, right? We're wired that way. We're wired for worship. Well, here's the thing. Someone has to worship God. Right? Someone has to worship who is unqualified in beauty and love, the maker of all things. Someone has to worship. Let me just say this really quick. God has given his people the task to worship. In fact, our responsibility the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1, is to be a royal priesthood, which means is that on Sundays we have the task, because there are people out there that are not going to worship, but God has given us the task and the responsibility within creation itself to bring worship to the one who is worthy. LeBron is great. I love his game, right? Steph Curry, I love his game. Garth Brooks, I'm not a country guy, okay? Sorry, country people, right? But someone obviously has to show up and support them. Well, who's going to do that in creation? Well, God's given his people the responsibility to do that. To sum up the praises of God, the worship of God, the beauty of God, and to give it back to him. And it's when we learn worship like this that our lives begin to line up with truth, God's truth. And that is when we begin to experience freedom and God's power. Am I talking to the right people this morning? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, who receive glory and honor and power for you who created all things and by your will, you create all things. By your will, they existed and were created. So I want us to end by worshiping. Chris, how do you, how do you get out of a difficult season? How do you handle temptation? How do you figure out what God wants you to do? How do you identify the will of God? How do I raise my kids? How do I get the job that, that God wants me to get? How do I love my neighbor, right? How do I love my spouse? How do I save my marriage? We all have these questions. How do I overcome anxiety? How do I deal with my feels? How do, how do, I, how do I negotiate temptations and life and all the things that we experience? We do that by making a commitment to worship like this. When you begin to say worthy are you, right? You, what what happens? Your head gets into heaven. Your line your life begins to line up with God's perspective, his authority. And that is when you enter into God's empowering presence.